All right. So before we jump into our regular episode, we have a quick announcement from Inyash. Yes. Uh, right here. I'm just with Steven because if we forgot to do this during the episode and I called him back afterwards, um, sorry about not having Jace around. Uh, but I have a, I don't know if it's really an announcement, more like kind of a a thing for people who have read uh, my book, What Lies Dreaming, which came out last year. Uh, there is a, I'm not sure how many people are, are you familiar with the uh, Dragon Con, Stephen? Uh, no. Dragon Con is a really big nerd con down in Atlanta, Georgia. That happens every year. It's uh, it, it's freaking huge. Uh, it is it's becoming like Comic-Con size over time. They take over several city blocks of Atlanta every year now. And uh, a number of years ago, one of the, not really an organizer, but someone who uh, has some sway with the Dragon Con, started this Dragon Awards thing. It was Larry Correa, just for anyone who wants an actual name, uh, started a Dragon Awards thing where they give out their own awards every year for things like science fiction novel, fantasy novel, that kind of stuff, uh, military SF or fantasy novel. And it's uh, a popular choice sort of thing. It's no, you, no one has to pay any money or be any part of a committee or a published respected figure or anything. It's just if you can get online to this website, you can enter a nomination and nominate a book that you really liked. And the interesting thing is that they have a category for best alternate history novel. Uh, normally, I wouldn't even, you know, mention my thing because I'm a relatively unknown person with a uh, small niche book. But alternate history is like a pretty small sub niche in the uh, sci-fi fantasy genre. There aren't a lot of things published in it. So if a number of people were to go and nominate What Lies Dreaming, an alternate history novel, there's a chance it could get on the list of nominees and thus possibly exposing it to uh, some more people, which would be really cool, you know, for me. I think I, I, I would just like more people to see it because I am kind of proud of it. So, yeah, I wanted to say uh, that we will be dropping a link to the DragonCon Fan Awards nominations in today's episode. And they are open until the 19th, I believe. So four days, yes, July 19th. Uh, you guys got four days from the airing of this podcast to do that nomination if you want. And you can also nominate a bunch of other things that you've enjoyed this year, like, like I said, sci-fi novel, horror novel, comic book, all sorts of things are uh, available for nominations in popular votes. Well, hell yeah, man. You got my vote. Sweet. Uh, I mean, like you said, I I can't say I've ever heard of another science fiction fantasy historical fiction book. But, oh, they're... You know, I'm, not a, I'm not a very, like ear-to-the-ground, avid reader, like, aware of what's going on. But, uh, you know, I, what I'm getting at is that I'm agreeing with you. God, I'm unorganized. <laughs> anyway, that sounds awesome. Well, I mean, you, you have an excuse of being unorganized. I just popped this on you out of the blue. Like, you're no. hearing about it now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all good, though. I'm stoked for you. I think yeah. uh, I'll, I'll go vote for it. Everyone else should. You got four days. Check the link in the description for, the, for this episode. And, uh, yeah, man, anything else you wanted to add to that? Nope, that was it. Let's get into our awesome episode. Sounds like a plan. Welcome 
Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jay Sticky. And today... Hello, everybody. <laughs> uh, and today we are being uh, led in by Steven. Actually, no, because we're, uh, we're doing the... God, my stupid brain. Um, sequences. The sequence posts. Thank you. We're doing the sequences first, yes? Oh, yeah. I uh, will be totally honest. I forgot them, but I'm ready to pick it up as we start in, so... Alrighty. I didn't forget them. Huzzah! Huh, should I lead? Uh, sure, go for it. I'm just pulling up my notes, so yeah. Yeah, so uh, we've got My Wild and Reckless Youth, which uh, is about Eliezer uh, when he was a young, a wee lad. Um, and he apparently tried to come up with an explanation for neurons that involved quantum gravity. And he considers this to be like one of his greatest mistakes or possibly his greatest mistake, <laughs> which sure. If you're Eliezer, um, <laughs> I'm sure there have been more mistakes made since then. Well, there's like, there's a net, there's a post way later on in the sequences about like my, my best and worst mistake or something. And this wasn't it. I think that's just an example of him totally failing to reason properly. Yeah. But no, I, I think it was hyperbolic, but, uh, Basically, yeah, that was his sin was, he described it as using a mysterious answer to explain a mysterious question, which um, he had been leading up to in some of the previous sequences as well. Uh, yeah. He said this was because he was a devoted, capital T, traditional, capital R rationalist, uh, and he had not yet known the way of Bayes, which was also capitalized. Yes. He says that even after he invented his answer, in quotes, the phenomenon was still a mystery unto me and possessed the same quality of wondrous impenetrability that it had at the start. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit, like, I sort of wish he had explained what he meant by traditional rationality. I'm pretty sure he just means the scientific method, the sort of norms of thinking philosophically or scientifically, like, at that point in time. Yeah, I got that. I think that's the impression I got as well. Yeah, if you're I get the feeling. Yeah, I get the feeling. It's like what people think of uh, of the like Victorian era people with beakers and uh, you know writing in scientific journals and just using very formal language and doing the best they can at the time, you know. But uh, but it's it's moved on since that point, and some people are still more in that mindset of if I just follow the rules of science, everything will be scientific. I think that's way more traditional than what he was talking about, but... Okay. Like, normally when I think of... When someone's contrasting something against Bayesian uh, reasoning, I think of frequentist, which, um... Or even just, like, Popperian-style uh, falsification, right? Yeah. Um, like, the the science you're taught in school... Right. Rather than the science you're taught in school plus the actual ways to think about stuff. He does specifically uh, mention that falsification thing. He said uh, in this quote I pulled, as a traditional rationalist, the young Eliezer was careful to ensure that his mysterious answer made a bold prediction of future experience. But my hypothesis made no retrospective predictions. According to traditional science, retrospective predictions don't count, so why bother making them? To a Bayesian, on the other hand, if a hypothesis does not today have a favorable likelihood ratio over I don't know, it raises the question of why you today believe anything more complicated than I don't know. That is a very, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like a good soundbite, but that's a really good soundbite. I think it's a good soundbite. 
Uh, I remember... Sorry? Oh, I was just going to say it's a bit long for one, but yes, go ahead, sorry. This is the problem with Skype. It's much harder to to do this. Next next episode, we'll all be back in one room again, thank God. Hey. Get to see your new digs. Hells to the yes. Uh, I was put in mind of... I can't remember the exact quote, but there was a part of Methods of Rationality where Harry's asking Hermione, do you know the scientific method? And she's like, of course I know the scientific method. And you state a hypothesis, you do a test, you weigh the results, and then you make a cardboard... <laughs> that was it, like a cardboard display. Yeah. <laughs> Just cracked me up because I was thinking of, uh, you know, science fairs and the, like, very, very formulaic scientific yep. method that children are taught. But, um... Eliezer would probably be glad to know that, I mean, at least, um, you know, in the field of medicine and specifically like pharmacodynamics, uh, they do hire Bayesian statisticians to crunch a bunch of numbers on the feasibility of different study designs. They do look at the past knowledge that you'd be building upon. So I don't really know. um, And it would be interesting to find out what sequence of events led up to people updating in this way honestly i think it's probably just capitalism like inventing drugs that work is more profitable than not inventing drugs that work unfortunately it hasn't failed to or it hasn't we haven't been able to stop companies from like greedily waiting until patents expire and then taking the same molecule and adding a methyl group that doesn't do anything and then relabeling it something new and doing all new branding stuff yeah Lunesta. I mean, that's also a, that's also a, a technique, right? Yes. I mean, it's not. It sounds like what you're saying is that at least in pharma, chemi- pharma pharmacological chemistry, what'd you say it was called? Uh, pharmacodynamics, or yeah, you could just say like pharmacodynamics. Big pharma. That's a well, at least in the field of big pharma, it sounds like one rationalist technique is winning because it actually works. Yes. Absolutely. And do you know how long they've been doing this? Because I know uh, the sequences are like twelve years old now. I don't know. I only got into the field like last year. Okay. You mean your boot camp didn't include a history of the field? Oh, they did. They had to take for. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, yeah, I told you about. Well, you some forgot. Of the history you forgot of all the, the useless shit. The, the boot camp was, uh, if you remember, like Slate Star Codex, rest in peace. I'm doing a like genuflection, but you can't see it. <laughs> uh, there was the. Oh, it was called my IRB nightmare. Uh, we can link to the probably way back to machine version of that, but they're talking about it was Scott like kind of deciding i want to do a research i'm a smart person i can do this and then running into all of the terrible 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 like regulations from the federal level and oh yeah yeah the review board uh a lot of and all he really wanted to do was uh give a survey to some people right yeah yeah but um and that was unethical it's because uh and my boot camp crunched this into us as well the history of clinical trials is paved with blood. Or paved? I don't know. Painted. <laughs> I tried to do a metaphor and it didn't work. But yeah, uh, there's lots of unethical trials that were done in the past. And now, in order to make sure this never, ever, 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 ever happens again, we have to put like 7,000 bureaucracies in charge of everything. As long as there's no trials ever again, there won't be any unethical trials. Uh, it's like the cruelty to elephants problem. Uh, I did... Uh... Like a small scale, I don't know what I guess a psychology experiment when I was an undergrad, and had to get board approval for that. 
Oh, you had to and get like an the, IRB. The, the only risk, yeah, the only risk to patients or risk to subjects was like possible emotional distress or something. <laughs> yeah, I love the. Uh, there's some trials that are just so minimally. Uh, I wanted to say minimally invasive. I don't think that's the right term, but there, there's such little risk of danger, but you still have to list everything that could possibly happen. And then you're also required to list the alternatives to participating in this study, which Scott pointed out in his post, the only alternative that I and like the woman that was supervising him could really agree on was not participating in this study. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen that one a bunch of times too. Uh, I mean, like working with cancer, there's less of the, uh, I mean, like your alternatives are, well, I could die. The referencing the meme of the, the old man shrugging. Well, it's easy to get people to sign off on it. Well, yeah. That reminds me, this is a, a super apropos post to lead us into today's topic. Yeah. Because he goes on to say, yeah. um, like, he, I, I'm skimming a bit through just so we can work through it, but um, when I think about how my younger self carefully followed the rules of traditional rationality in the course of getting the answer wrong, it sheds light on the question of why people who call themselves rationalists do not rule the world. You need one whole hell of a lot of rationality before it does anything but lead you into making new and interesting mistakes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so. just before that, he said that uh, he's lucky he was at least a traditional rationalist because that let him dig himself back out of the hole. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> without it, he would have been totally screwed. But uh, as he said, traditional rationality still wasn't enough to get it right. It just led me into different mistakes than the ones I had explicitly forbidden. Yeah. Oh, that was the next article, but um, let's move on to the other one because they, they tie into each other. Oh, wait. Yeah, wait, there's, but... there's one more thing I wanted to pull out of this one, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where he talks about how, uh, and this is actually why I didn't pursue, I mentioned I got my undergraduate degree in psychology. This is why I didn't pursue the field, because I wouldn't get to pick the problem and I'd get to spend five years right. digging into something That's that probably was wasn't a thing. Pull out. And yeah, and he says that the way traditional, traditional rationality is designed, it would have been acceptable for me to spend 30 years of my life, or 30 years on my silly idea, so long as I succeeded in falsifying it eventually, and was honest with myself for what my theory predicted, and accepted the disproof when it arrived, etc. This is enough to let the ratchet of science click forward, but it's a little harsh on the people who waste 30 years of their lives. Yeah. Honestly, I wish that traditional rationality or whatever, you know, the paradigm at the time was, had allowed people to do that for 30 years just in good faith, because often I think what happens is that people refuse to accept their results, so they would screw around with the statistics or, like do unethical study design things that makes it look like oh look we did find evidence for telekinesis looking at you zimbardo (laughs) it's yeah no absolutely but it's also i mean you can kind of understand how it might be really hard for someone to accept that they've spent their basically entire productive adult life on something which turns out to be completely wrong like my life is a waste i think that it's not a waste i mean like i think that there is yeah there's the Worst case scenario is that you did decide to pursue something silly and you were really stuck on it. So ideally, like, science would incorporate the Bayesian priors, um, Bayesian thinking, uh, in deciding what you're going to pursue. But then also, you know, there was the whole, uh, I feel like I keep bringing it up too, but the replication crisis, uh, scare quotes, which... I'm not scare quoting it because it wasn't a thing, but just because of the really melodramatic title. But uh, if there was more prestige to be had in replicating and falsifying or adding evidence to previously 
like a established work, then that would be excellent. Yeah. I mean, it would give a lot of people yeah, jobs. I think, I think things are ratcheting in that direction. I think um, they... I don't know how much money there is in that, but, you know, there are, like, our uh, attempts at journals that, um, like, I will publish the results no matter my findings, and then they'll accept the grant money, do the, do the experiment. Because there's also, like, publication bias. We only publish positive results. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least, you know, there are, there are moves in the last decade or so to better that situation. Yeah, it became... Like it was the scientific community was well aware of the fact that it had this issue, and I'm really happy to have in my lifetime seen them taking a lot of really positive strides towards uh, dealing with it. But the whole system had been stacked against actually figuring out the truth previously. It was like if you're in academia, then you have to publish. Uh, if you're someone that has to publish, then you want to publish positive results because you won't get published if it's something negative. So you gotta skew your data or find like a new thing that no one's ever done before which good luck with that all the low-hanging fruit has been picked already yeah most of the easy to find answers have been found twenty dollar bill on the street etc i want to say that like it's no it's nothing to be ashamed of to spend 30 years working on something just to end up proving that this one potential avenue turned out to be incorrect you've still like you said, ratcheted science forward and improved knowledge. And that is very much the way I felt about things up until maybe a year ago. But now, you know, I also realize that there is time pressure to get this stuff done. Yeah. If, if we want to uh, secure aging or whatever it is our goal is before our death, uh, we, we kind of want to avoid wasting 30 years of anyone's life because there's a limited amount of people that have the ability uh, and the inclination to do this sort of thing and they have a limited amount of time to do it in so not wasting time as much as possible is a huge benefit god there was some other slate star codex article and i can't remember the name of this one um maybe one of you will or i'm sure one of our listeners will where was it uh, now i'm now i'm like sort of doubting myself about whether this was Slate Star Codex or somewhere on the strong, but this sounds like a scatism, talking about how many years go into the training of every scientist, how each field becomes more and more and more and more specialized as we gain more knowledge, and then the amount of time it takes you to absorb all the knowledge of all the previous generations working on it, like, eh. Yeah. Like, you've only got however many productive years like if you're, you know, getting your doctorate by the time you're in your 40s or whatever. Yeah, we, we got to fix this aging thing, man, so we can keep doing more better stuff. For real. It's it's such a waste every time someone dies. Yeah. Fuck death. But Exactly. Anyways, we should continue on to failing to learn from history. I was just going to say that that was the second <laughs> uh, post that we sort of already summarized, but didn't really mention the name of it's basically just a continuation of uh the previous post and like honestly i pulled so many quotes from here and it's such a short post that i think i pulled like 40 percent of it but um i don't know i guess i'll all right i'll jump forward uh he says that my younger self did not realize that solving a mystery should make it feel less confusing i was trying to explain the mysterious phenomenon not render it into a mundane phenomenon yeah i When I read that, I was reminded of my own idiot child self uh, reading a bunch of Madeline the Engel books, which, by the way, Madeline the Engel's a great writer, but uh, 
one of the things she did was rec- trying to reconcile Einstein's theories with religion. Mm. And that was a trap for little me. So I also, I remember, um, I was actually telling Phoenix about like, remember when you had to like cover your textbooks or like you'd have to pay the damage. So I would cover all my textbooks with just brown paper bags because my family was poor. And then I would like, write all over them. And I had all these like books that had equations trying to prove various stupid things <laughs> using Einstein's mm-hmm. theories. And I didn't even know any math. Like I knew, you know, um, up until like a middle school age math and probably a little bit like advanced knowledge of like physics and biology, but I was just making a bunch of shit up, throwing numbers around. And I was like, look, I've proved, I don't know, telekinesis. I keep for some reason defaulting to telekinesis because it's a funny word. But I was like showing my other fellow classmates and they're like, wow, you're smart. I was just like, yeah, (laughs) I'm a genius now. (laughs) But yeah, they're like, I actually really like that line where, if you notice yeah, you're but... still confused about something like that, the idea of noticing your confusion, I think is a huge, uh, important concept, yeah. uh, that the rationalist community or Eliezer in particular has really sort of crystallized. Yeah. I, I like the, the idea of, you know, making something mundane. If it still feels mysterious, you haven't really answered it. And like he points out that that is, um, that's a reason some people, don't think science can solve things because they're taught about, uh, I don't have the exact quote here, but as children, they're taught about uh, stars and biology and, uh, and how the planets work. And it all just seems so mundane because you really have the answers, right? Like, Oh, okay. It's gravity. The things travel in circles because they're pulled towards each other. All right. Uh, And he like, he says, these were all incredibly mysterious, wondrous things. And now they feel mundane, but nobody lived through that conversion. So when they find new, mysterious, wondrous things, they don't think of the correct way to get it into science is to make it feel that mundane way. I, I think... Uh, oh, go ahead. Our, I don't know, like, I think our generation, the one after as well, are just like... I, I know I always feel incredibly lucky to have been born when I was because I got to watch the birth of the internet cell phones, uh, microprocessors, like getting more and more complex and just uh, the birth of like really simple AI to like GPT-3. Like, Oh my God, we got to do an episode on that at some point. Yeah. Oh, I have, hmm, I have a couple of people in mind who would be good hosts if they'd be willing to record their voices. Excellent. Then let us reach out to one. Yes. Yeah, I think the the mundanity of science or like the explanation of the universe, you know, you, you flip on a light and you're not mo- amazed that the light, the, the room is illuminated. Like that all just comes from, it's it's not that the average person knows how that works. You know, the average person knows that they're, they're closing a circuit and that makes electricity go or something, right? And that's about all I know. Um, but like the... Even even though it's unknown to me, it doesn't seem like a compelling mystery because I know in the in my head that it is understood, and that makes it like somehow less interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and I think this is a a common thing for you know people who who have no interest in science at all and they they just get the sense of blandness about it, and that's why like I really like the poetic writings of science from like Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins, um, as well as. Uh, I know I've plugged this book before, but uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm forgetting the author's name right now. Uh, but Bryson. It's, it, 
Yes, Bill Bryson. Is that it? Yep. I also recommend yes, that one. Yes, thank you. Uh, it really. Yeah. It. It really digs into the history of us learning stuff as a species. And it gives you some scope of like I think it'd be you know a, a better scope uh, might be like a long history of chemistry or something. <laughs> if there's a book like that, that would do a better job of doing this feeling. But this does it in in a lighter dose of trying to imagine what it was like not knowing this stuff. It's um, like I like you know where the hell do mountains come from? It's so entertaining. You know, like, that sounds to like read. such a stupid question to ask, and yet it's a how that sort of how that very mundane phenomena was understood. Uh, took a long time tectonic theory is uh you know was was not popular when your parents were in school um it's i think i mentioned a few episodes ago i think it was this podcast that you know the the extinction of the dinosaurs by meteorite wasn't accepted until the late 80s did i tell you guys i probably said this on the podcast before but uh i found a i found a book of my dad's that had these illustrations of dinosaurs that just looked incredibly derpy like they were like inflatable uh, and it like just had this one chapter about dinosaurs and said that they like lived however many years ago. Um, they were giant reptiles they, that grew to enormous proportions due to like a brief abundance of resources on the earth after the flourishing of plants or something like that. But then they quickly grew too large to be able to sustain themselves and died out. <laughs> And I remember being a child, I was a dinosaur nut when I was a kid. I was one of those kids that had, like, one of every dinosaur toy. And I could, like, ramble all the facts about, like, do you know about Parasaurolophus? No one knows what the horn in the back of its head is for. It might actually just be, like, for a mate display, but it might be for amplifying the sound of their calls. I don't care, kid. Who are you? Go away. (laughs) But, like, I read that, and I was just in tears. Like, I was rolling on the floor laughing. I was like... I tried to explain to my dad why that was funny. He's just like, oh, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, by the way, who like still doesn't believe in global warming or science-based medicine. So. Well, that sucks. One of the best things, <laughs> yeah. though, about living in this time is that my dad can grumble about science all he wants, but like every few months there's some other cool technology that I can be like, hey, dad. <laughs> hey, dad, look, my, my phone can talk back to me now. Whatever. Science still doesn't exist. (laughs) Ghosts in the phone. Uh, Can I read like sort of a longer pull? Mm -hmm. Please. All right. Go ahead. You can read us out. Read out the rest of rest of your polls if you want. Do the polls. So he goes. I thought the lesson of history was that astrologists and alchemists and vitalists had an innate character flaw, a tendency towards mysterianism, which led them to come up with mysterious explanations for non-mysterious subjects. But surely, if a phenomenon really was very weird, a weird explanation might be in order. It was only afterward, when I began to see the mundane structure inside the mystery, that I realized whose shoes I was standing in. Only then did I realize how reasonable vitalism had seemed at the time. How surprising and embarrassing had been the universe's reply of, Life is mundane, and does not need a weird explanation. We read history, but we don't live it. We don't experience it. If only I had personally postulated astrological mysteries and then discovered Newtonian mechanics, postulated alchemical mysteries and then discovered chemistry, postulated vitalistic mysteries and then discovered biology, I would have thought of my mysterious answer and said to myself, no way am I falling for that again. <laughs> Good pull. And... That is, there's, it's also worth uh, disappointing everybody that um, 
like he, he has that that line a tendency towards mysterianism with a lowercase m that is in some small circles a capital m um i know that uh one of my first introductions to philosophy was a course of lectures by colin mcginn and that's his like explanation for consciousness that it's so complicated that mm-hmm. there's no reason to assume that our our weak monkey brains will ever understand it oh dude there's a lot of people like that around i run into them yeah fair bit oh i know but but he calls it mysterianism with a capital m oh oh okay interesting yeah like he, he just he wholeheartedly embraces the mysterious answer i mean it's it's not a mysterious answer as in like well it's magic but it's a pointless answer and as in well it's impossible for us to get it but it's it's like he doesn't understand that people thought that about all kinds of things and now we get them right yeah, didn't yeah. somebody say that about like uh what was it you're thinking of uh life and you know being able to move your hand and stuff uh what was his name kelvin yeah i'm thinking of probably lord kelvin who just really liked to jerk off to how fucking mysterious everything was <laughs> hey man that's everybody i th- almost everybody yeah no i like i don't know i think the thing that makes rationalists weird is or i don't know i, I remember when i was a kid like in in the single digits i really liked the x-files because of the whole like I want to believe in the mysteriousness of mysteries everywhere, you know? Oh, I was super and into like, paranormal shit, too. But, like, I, like, bought all these books, and then I needed to find out if it was really true. Mm. I mean, I did the same thing with religion. And like, there uh, was your downfall. Yeah, but, I mean, like, it was just... If something's, like, everybody's talking up how mysterious it is and how no one can know, and I'm just like, but what do we know? And then I better weigh all the evidence. Yeah, that's probably why... I, <laughs> rationalists are weird you were too inclined to question things too early well i wanted uh, to believe in you know, all this it, stuff um, and now yeah your mistake was was looking into it yeah right it, assuming that what you wanted was to actually believe this what what it seems like your brain ended up really wanting was to understand what was going on yeah so i could manipulate yeah. it like if psychic powers existed then like why the fuck didn't i have them yet and how do i how do i initiate that you know, if there's ghosts, then I need to find out where to find them and how I can, like, harness their powers to have a ghost ray or something. <laughs> I think most people just aren't ambitious enough. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this actually ties us in neatly to what I wanted to talk about. And this is to get around to uh, occasional back and forth with a chain of emails I've had with, or I think I've been answering all of them, but he's been emailing the... Uh, um, Bayesian Conspiracy account, but uh, and what Matt is the has been email, emailing... What is the email address there? Oh, the Bayesian... Wait, what is the email address? Let's find <laughs> out. Uh, Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Excellent. If you, want, if you want a quick reply from anyone, that's not the best way to get a hold of us. The best way to get a hold of us is probably to join our Discord and ping us. Uh, or maybe ping us on Reddit, but all the emails are read and eventually responded to, even if it takes us two years to get around to doing your episode. Um, yeah. So... Anyway, the the I think you know we, we touched on it probably in some episodes here and there, but I wanted to just dedicate some actual time to answering this because I felt like it was a uh, you know worthwhile topic. Um, like the 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 emails are too long to easily summarize. Um, so if I I don't think I'm doing a misjustice to say like that the thrust of it is it doesn't seem like there's empirical evidence to, to substantiate the claim that. Um, being a proficient rationalist will equate with you winning, quote unquote. Um, like it, it seems like 
you know, we aren't the uh, apex of of industry across the planet. We aren't uh, running nations. Um, we aren't all billionaires. So, like, why are we failing if if we all think we understand stuff? Um, part of the possible explanation that Matt throws out is that, or rather, that Matt delivers. He doesn't throw this out. He uh, suggests that like the world might just be too random to like incorporate into a model that works um that you can uh whatever like uh make predictions and manipulate like if the world is just too unpredictable you can't predict that mm-hmm. um i so i mean we could take it piece by piece but like part of my answer to that is that like that is not a fact that's not known um so well i don't know i'll i'll throw out that and let you guys Wait, what is the fact that's before, not known? Uh, that, the, that there is, uh, like, randomness and blank spots in our map. Okay. Like, th- some things are unpredictable. Like, uh, mm. you know, it, like, no one would have predicted three years ago that the stock market would have taken a huge dump in, uh, what, April of 2020, right? Um, like, because you can't... No, no one in 2017 was accounting for some global pandemic that would hit the... Uh, economy in such a way the first quarter of the 20th the 2020 right well i don't know actually can i stop you because yeah. yes like yeah three years ago absolutely but um for many years now people have been saying it's only a matter of time before some sort of pandemic hits and like specifically the rationalist community was really good about being ahead of the ball on the COVID thing and saying hey this COVID thing looks like it might be a a serious issue uh, to the point where uh, I know several rationalists actually started selling stock before it tanked, including Eliezer, because it just looked like uh, the market, if this actually was a big thing, the market should be a lot lower than it is, and they think it is going to be a big thing, so let's get out ahead of this. And um, the like we talked last episode about how the New York Times is doxing Scott Alexander. The specific reason that the journalist was uh, researching the rationalist community and Scott Alexander is because the rationalist community was so good about the COVID uh, thing as compared to the rest of the population. Like that was going to be a major focus of the article, and so I think they actually have had, at least in the recent past, uh, quite a bit of success. Yeah. So I, I was putting out like an example of the kind of thing I thought that Matt might be talking about. Um, I like another example he uses was like, uh, you know, you might be able to find an internet group of dumb gamblers that stumbled across, you know, stumbled ass backwards into Bitcoin. Um, but they aren't rationalist in the least, like they just got lucky. But then that raised the question of like, why aren't there a lot of rationalist billionaires who made a bunch of money on Bitcoin? But I'm not sure if this came out after 2018 or not, but rationalists did do surprisingly well in the Bitcoin market. Yeah, I was going to say. Not surprisingly well. Uh, I know. So like that, I, but I think this might've been in response to that SSC post about how well we did, or maybe this was right before that and it was perfectly timely. Actually, um, um, there was an SSC post about why we didn't do better at communicating. There was a Quern post from like right before Bitcoin took off or was it Quern? Somebody who's real mathy uh, was like, Hey guys, look at this Bitcoin thing. This looks like it could be huge for all these reasons. Uh, you should buy some stocks and i think a few people did but like a word didn't get out to the general community and i think that post was scott sort of saying like why not <laughs> we could have all been billionaires instead of just like the people that put a lot of funding into miri and cfire and i mean but yeah a lot of those i know a lot of those organizations did get a big boost of money from the people who 
made a lot of money in Bitcoin. I met a couple of people I... who made a lot of money in Bitcoin at one of the solstice events I went to, and they were kind of talking about like, yeah, so now I don't have to work for the rest of my life, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with all this money, and I'm just like, <laughs> I wish I had your problems. I'm so happy. For, I mean, you know, it's possible to be like so happy for somebody and so jealous yeah. of them, right? No, I was like, no, that's, that's uh, fucking I, I, awesome. I believe the post that you linked about basketballism does say that 3% of less wrong users made over $100,000 on Bitcoin. And that is a far, far greater percentage than the general population. Yeah. And so, like, maybe I'll, I'll jump to one of his more recent emails just because this one, like... Well, there, there's one other thing in it. I don't like so part of it is I'm, I'm just picking it apart and like nailing down the exam or like ripping apart the examples. And that's not quite what I want to do. I want to hit the broader subject of like, uh, why aren't rationalists winning? Or if they are, why is it not obvious? Um, but like another example was, uh, you know, um, if uh, I'm trying to paraphrase an email, like you go to a job interview and, you know, rationally calculate a resume and interview and and your interview answers perfectly. Unfortunately, some other guy up for the job was in the same fraternity as the interviewer and maybe just subconscious, or maybe he, they just didn't like your haircut or something. Rationality can't fix that. So asserts Matt in 2018. Um, I sort of disagree. Like if your goal is to get this job or if your goal is to get a specific job or something like networking is a big part of that. That's not a lost fact on the rest of us. Like if you're taught, you know, if your frat bros are taught to uh, network, it's, it's not a skill that is ignored in the community. Um, so, like, I'll put it to you guys broadly. Um, why aren't rationalists ruling the world? Hmm. Or is that, is that like, the wrong question to ask? Um, I think it's sort of in the middle there. Uh, I do wonder, or, like, I am a bit frustrated that we are not more accelerated than we currently are. I do think that some of that has to do with the fact that like the communication thing with bitcoin uh we are still small we're still disparate i know that there's um people gathering on in sf bay but unfortunately that was kind of due to founder effects and the fact that the tech industry is there but it's just like a suboptimal place to live uh no offense to my friends in the bay i think they'll all agree actually but i don't know like you still kind of have to almost be initiated into a secret society to be part of the rationality community. Like you have to find the right posts or you have to have the right friend. Um, yeah, uh, I want to uh, go ahead. I, I want to say part of it is that it is a very small movement still um, in terms of just total numbers in uh, America. Uh, but, and on top of that, it's a very young movement still. I think most rationalists are uh, in their twenties or thirties um the and a lot of this is like the question is why haven't they taken over the world uh rationalism is a lot of it is about being able to meet your goals and not a lot of people have take over the world as one of their goals um i mean i wouldn't mind ruling the world uh, it, it, but it's not something i'm pursuing and i am unfortunately getting to an older age right now uh, which I am you know, being reminded more and more of every day. But the, the fact is, like, I, I make only a little bit more than the uh, national median, and I am very content with my life. I have more money than I know what to do with to the point where I'm probably going to retire next year yeah. and just live off yeah, <laughs> and just live off what I got and, uh, and do what I want with my life. And, you know, in the metrics, that looks like, you know, guy in uh, – 
guy in his late 30s or early 40s now has almost no income. Uh, sucks to be him, but on the other hand, I'm living my optimal life, I'm comfortable, and that's that's what I want. Yeah, I think that that's a big part of my answer, too, is that, I mean, there is at least one rationalist in, what is it, the the house um, somewhere on the East Coast. I forget what her name is. Uh, you know, I'm talking about the politician. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know who you mean, though. I, I forget who, I, I don't even know what state she represents or whatever, but... Um, you know, maybe it is her goal to take over the world via the presidency. And if so, more power to her. She seems to be on the way of doing that. Like, I think that the, it's, it's less about like, you know, same thing as we do every night, pinky, let's take over the world. Um, and it's more about, that was a pinky in the brain joke um, <laughs> for our younger listeners. Uh, so like, you know, like Max Tegmark, uh, says that, you know, like the, the center for applied rationality was instrumental in the birth of the future of life Institute that four of their five co-founders are CIFAR alumni. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so if if your goal is trying to research and prevent existential risks, uh, it seems like at least one organization was born out of that. Um, and, and like, that seems like, in the grand scheme, a larger goal than becoming president, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, at I least mean, some maybe of us... if you're president, you could affect more change in that direction, but your odds of becoming president, even if you, you know, again, with, with all the other factors involved, um, might be, it might just be easier to start your own Institute and find out how to save the world that way, rather than become president and try and boss some people around. Yeah. I think, I think a president is, first of all, uniquely unsituated. President is not going to make huge changes on the world because of all the other people vying for that power. And I think rationalists are uniquely um, situated to be terrible presidential candidates because we don't do great with neurotypical general population. Uh, but more to the point, well, that's not that's that might be a sweeping generalization. And if so, that'd be a failure that we should mm. you know win at. So possibly, like, but I mean, more to the point, there are actual rationalists who are in the process of of to say put it kind of tongue in cheekly, create God, which is going to be a much bigger. Uh, take over the world move than becoming a president right yeah i mean if you're if your goal is to radically shift the future of humanity becoming president is one way to try and do some stuff maybe but then the next president will just rip the solar panels off the white house and shit on everything you ever did so like there's not much you know that you can guarantee long-lasting change when doing that but if you want to change the future light cone of the human species you can create a a recursively self-improving artificial intelligence that will change the world, right? Um, so, yes, uh, that was Enios messaging saying that the person's name was Elizabeth Edwards oh. and New Hampshire state representative. Yeah, I met her. She's not still in office, though. Oh, no. Or at least last, uh, I don't know, last time I talked to her it was like probably a couple of years ago, though. So uh, I think she just needed a, some self-care time. <laughs> Because now she's moved into the shadow government that has more power mm, anyway. I hope. <laughs> okay. Uh, hang on. Let me regenerate my thought there. Yeah. What I was going to say was I like the direction of the organizations that the rationalist community has helped like to found. Uh, CIFAR is helping people learn these arts of rationality and helping them apply them instrumentally uh, to fixing problems that they have with their personal lives or with their careers. 80,000 hours is looking at like the top existential risks or the 
fields that are going to be like that are maybe the most underserved or maybe the most likely to be really relevant in the future and trying to direct young people or new graduates or people that are shifting careers towards those. Uh, Mary is doing whatever Mary does. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, considering both our small numbers and our uh, overall youthfulness, I think the Irrationalists have a very outsized impact. Yeah, I think... I don't know. Uh, there's also something to be said, though, for when you were talking about rationalists being less good at, I don't know, doing politics or, or interfacing with neurotypicals. That's also a thing. I mean, uh, if the Slate Star Codex polls are representative, which they might be a bit skewed, there might be like slightly different readership there, but it seems like a lot of autistic people, a lot of uh, systems thinkers, a lot of people with social anxiety, a lot of, like, a certain demographic, let's say. Uh, I do remember, I believe it was, who was the guy that founded Dragon Army? His name is escaping me. Oh, uh, Duncan. I'm not sure. Duncan Sabian, at one point, I think, said, like, and it was sort of unfortunately phrased, but I understand what he meant, that, like, we need more traditionally feminine women in rationality, which could be quoted out of context terribly but like what he meant was like community organizers managers like people that are good at talking to others <laughs> i mean um and not just that like demographic specifically but what he's talking about is people who are good at these things a lot of and enjoy them yeah that's true i was like all right when i was doing social media management but i fucking hated it and couldn't wait to get out uh, definitely like I can, yeah i mean the i think i think the the overall thrust is that like it's not everyone's goals to do these big sweeping things that if your goal is to be like i want to just uh be able to commit to a, a workout regimen like why do i suck at being able to commit to like a basic goal <laughs> um you know like little things like that uh understanding your failures of thinking can actually help you do that there is a you know everyone loves the new york times um, I, that was a joke because they're the whole no, Scott no, Alexander thing. But there was a New York Times article called uh, "The Happiness Code" um, that was, um, you know, in the whole bullshit way that uh, big newspaper slash magazines write their posts, where there's a lot of like jibber jabber for word count or something. Did you have to keep a gratitude but, journal? And I haven't read the whole thing. <laughs> I was just going to mention that uh, at the at the top there was uh, um, like. The, I, I don't know if that's in there or not. Like I said, it's some many thousands of words. But, uh, you know, so maybe I'm not summarizing this correctly. But the point is, is that, like, yeah, see, look, I'm fucking halfway into it. And they mentioned CFAR, which is what the post was supposed to be about. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, like, there was a an article in the New York Times called uh, The Happiness Code, where uh, basically it's someone who did some interviews at CFAR and with some of the founders. The CFAR is the Center for Applied Rationality which basically took the, like, okay, we've got all these cool techniques and you can either, you know, you can read this giant book. Um, oh, would you believe it? Uh, out of curiosity, did Phoenix ever attend a CFAR mm-hmm. thing? Oh, Phoenix Elliott is named in this article. <laughs> all right, well, that's kind of cool. Uh, we'll be sure to tell them. Um, so, like, 
yeah, have fun. I'm kind of distracted, but I'll, I'll push past it. <laughs> you know what? I um, should have them on to talk about their experience. Ooh, yeah, that absolutely. sounds great. Anyway, so, well, rather than dig into this article, we'll just ask Phoenix because they're quoted in it. How fun is that? So um, the, the short version, though, is that, like, the, the reason I brought this whole thing up is that these people didn't go to CFAR so they could learn how to uh, affect radical change on a global scale. Um, they went there to figure out enough about their own inner workings to solve some problems that they're trying to solve in their own lives. And if that's your goal, that's your goal. And that's that's the way it is. Mm. Like, Or that's the way... Um, I mean, like, it doesn't seem like... So why why doesn't Phoenix run the world having taken a CFAR course? Well, presumably because they don't want to. Um, they've got other goals and other things they're working on first, right? I mean, um, I don't want to put words words in their mouths. but their that's, that's my guess. Primary goal right now is trying to figure out what their goals and values really are, which is actually really important. Most people go through life without actually like analyzing that. I'm also sort of in the process of doing that right now. Where, I mean, this is like I don't know how off topic this is, but. I've been talking about my like job working on cancer research and I have like with the help of uh, rationalist techniques, I have shifted careers like several times. Um, and I keep thinking that like, I have like my eyes set on a goal and I'm like, this is going to be my like dream career or this is definitely going to be really values aligned. And then when I get there, I like, no, not, not yet. I really actually, um, this is like going to be really stupid to say on air, uh, I have sort of my heart set now, like on getting involved in aging research. I really want to do that somehow. I'm not sure how yet, but hey, if anybody who's listening has any contacts in the industry or has any ideas about how I could get on that path, uh, that's been on my mind a lot lately. Damn. I don't feel like that's a stupid thing to say on air at all. That's awesome. Oh, it's more just like Um, the, I don't know. There's this weird like impetus, I think in Western cultures or maybe a lot of cultures where it's like, you have to pretend that you didn't try really hard. You're just like, oh yeah, whatever. You know, I got that degree. It was no big deal. Yeah. Fuck all that. (laughs) Um, So uh, moving on to the most recent one, which actually uh, spurred me to finally get on and do this episode. So sorry it took like two years, Matt. It wasn't until you mentioned like, hey, so I had an email in April uh, 2018 and I was like, oh shit, yeah, we haven't really hit this directly. Um, So like part of it is, uh, so like you had said that you've only ever heard of us talk about positively uh, biased tests to see whether rationality actually works as a tool to run human life. Despite this bias, I still think you don't have any evidence for it. Still, you should try to disprove that rationality is in any way useful before you bother adopting and learning the, all these techniques. And I, and I think there's little to no correlation be- between success and rationality past a baseline for normal level non-irrational behavior. Um, so, like, I think, uh, I hope we've addressed at least part of that, that, like, if you're not seeing every head of industry say, yes, I'm a, I'm a capital R rationalist, it might be because uh, that they're not trying to do that or because the movement as a whole is at most what 15 years old um so like a lot of them haven't had the 30 years it takes to get to the top of the corporate ladder or something but um like the main thing is that uh like you should be trying to disprove rational you should i want to grab this quote you should you should be trying to disprove that rationality is in any way useful before you bother adopting and learning all these techniques 
Um, I think there's two things to point out there. Like one is that uh, like the techniques, if you find them valuable, are worth learning whether or not uh, it pans out. Like um, like even if there was no no evidence whatsoever that this worked, if you found that it worked for you, great. Like I I didn't do any primary research um, on the efficacy of meditation before getting mildly interested in it and noticed a benefit from it. So I did it. So I still do once in a while. Like I I don't know if you need to have that rigorous of a um, time investment before you dig into literally anything you want to try. And I guess the other thing is that like it's curious. I I would I'm, I'm legit asking like how would you disprove that the 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 claim that rationality has positive impacts on people's lives? Um, and granted, that is a uh, like I mean yeah I, I think that's a a pretty hard ask because I like trying to prove a negative saying oh no it wasn't rationality it was really like the fact that you know you had a good breakfast every day for the last week or something um how could you possibly rule out a rather variable so like if uh like i i guess i'm i'm just torn cuz like part of it is tripping me up cuz well i guess a it's good to keep in mind that like yes we should look and see what the the confirming and denying evidence of this is and yet like if this does work i would be surprised like so again my claim that that um if your goal is to in any way better your own life uh through introspection of your own mind of uh like achieving your goals um and how how would i uh set about what, what sort of evidence would i find that that's not the case um yeah I, I don't expect to find evidence for things that I think are really true. I, uh... Like, what, what, is, what is the best evidence that the scientific method isn't the best way for finding out about the world? Yeah, that's... That, that's a real question to you two. Like, I... So if, if something is true, what is the best... Ev- like, where would you even find evidence that would suggest, oh, no, you know, there's actually these, these big gray areas where uh, it doesn't work? Um like you might say, well, the fact that we don't live on Mars yet or something, but that seems like a really weird criticism of science uh, because we're working on getting to Mars, right? I think uh, definitely there's only, I mean, the, the history of science has a pretty good track record in terms of, you know, there's less infant mortality or just, basically you can just look at trends that impact people's quality of life all across the board and see them going up and up and it correlates really strongly with well yeah it's like being too skeptical to say that like well it correlates uh it's definitely to do with better sanitation medicine uh transportation you know but um that's a different topic necessarily than rationality it's yeah i think i you know, I agree with a lot of the thought that it's way too early to tell that actually, like, we've been doing pretty good for ourselves considering how young the movement itself is. And I also, though, think that it's not worth just dismissing out of hand how we could be better or, like, whether or not this is the correct path. Definitely, uh, I do think one of the virtues of rationality is always asking, what do I know and how do I know it? Or what would it what would it look like if I was wrong? Um, yeah. I would say that also, um, 
when I was thinking about this topic. Yeah, like, rationality isn't even, like, well-known enough to have had any empirical studies. I think one thing you could do is pull a large number of rationalists, which unfortunately Slaystar Codex could have done. Uh, <laughs> I'm not bitter. And just ask a bunch of questions about, you know, like, you can self-report whether or not you think rationality is been a boon in your life. I know that I've talked to enough people and that's, this is, you know, we can bring our anecdotes into it and then you can roll your eyes at anecdotes. But like, I know I personally wouldn't have gotten anywhere near as far as I had if I hadn't been reading the sequences inspired by rationalist fiction, etc. But I always kind of had that mindset. I was bringing up like my weird childhood tendencies. Um, I don't know. These people probably like People in this movement probably would have individually stayed on whatever track that they're on, but they might not have had right. as much of a like unified push. I do think as a community, um, we're lacking in the things that make communities community-like. We could definitely do better in that regard. I, right now, I'm just trying to like start the first Denver Rationalist group house, and that's been harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, rationalists are uh, kind of loners there's a lot of people that like it's just like herding cats there's a lot of people that you get a lot of them together and i don't know there's personality differences there's yeah what were you gonna say Stu? oh no i mean i think that those, those part of those things are true as well i think like you know part of the because it seems like a cop-out to say well it's too young and there's no there's no studies done so like if that's the case then why would any of us believe this and part of that is because of our own personal anecdotes and those of people that we've spoken with and like at the end of the day, the plural of anecdotes is data. And if you hear from 100 people that, oh, yeah, this thing actually helped, and the people that you otherwise trust to be sane, um, it, it seems worth looking into. Like, the I know that CIFAR conducted a small study, I'm guessing, like, 2015 or 16, where they admitted 50 participants uh, to its workshop, but only actually admitted 25 and then they did like surveys of the other 25 who didn't come and the 25 who did and the 25 who came to the workshop it's a one-week workshop that costs like $3,900 back in the day I'm not sure what they cost now um did I say it was a five-day workshop that's what I meant to say and uh the the study showed that there's a statistically significant decrease in what psychologists referred to as neuroticism in the attendees, and they were there was also a less significant but still marked increase in self-efficacy or the belief in one's ability to accomplish goals. And so, like, because the study was done four years ago, means that they can't do longitudinal forty-year studies on these participants, and they only had twenty-five. So, like, if you're if you're uh, starting from the point of there's no reason to believe this, a a, 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 a trial of 50 participants won't really change your mind, right? Like what we need is a 2,000 person study where, uh, or a 4,000 per person study where 2,000 actually go to see our workshops, get rationality training, and we follow their career trajectories over the next 30 years. And the other 2,000 go to fake workshops and they don't actually learn anything. And then we see how their studies or see how their life trajectories turn out. And then maybe another 2000 people who don't go to any workshops so that, you know, uh, we can get a base rate. But like it's there's also like the the sampling bias, like the kind of people who yeah. are willing to volunteer or willing to volunteer. Yeah, their time and money to go. Um, actually, you know what? I think that randomized trial that CIFAR did, uh, I'll link to the thing where I'm reading a snippet about it. It's in a Vice article. Um I think that that was actually a randomized trial where they 
like messaged people again how do you find 50 random people um well and say do you guys want to come to a come to a workshop to i mean be, i've had people ask me that at the train station yeah they have to be part of the uh, same demographic too in order for it to have any i mean um you could very easily you know take 25 people who applied to CFAR themselves versus 25 people who are going to community college, but they're going to be different people already. That's right. And so, and so part of the issue there is that like, you're already selecting for people who are willing to spend $4,000 on bettering themselves. And so people who are willing to do that may or may not even like, yeah, and able to. And so those, those people may have done better in any case. Um, What I'm trying to see here is whether or not they actually didn't charge these these 25 participants who attended but i'm not sure but like uh an allegory for that is like um when i went and saw my most recent well i guess yeah my second therapist ever um i made an appointment to see this guy in like i don't know it was right before the world ended so it would have been like january um a few days before my first appointment he called and said hey are you still planning on attending your uh your scheduled appointment. And I was like, yes, that's why I made it. And I thought about it for the couple of days until I got there. And I asked him, I was like, so I imagine actually you called cause you get a lot of people who don't show up. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, do you think that's because like the impetus that they've made to say, I'm going to actually make steps to better myself, like is kind of all the nudge they needed. And he says, I think that's exactly it. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but that's, that's the short version. Mm-hmm. And so like people who are already like invested enough to try to better themselves will probably find some way to get there. So like, I guess what I'm getting at is that proving this to statistical satisfaction sounds really, really hard. Um, If anyone has any ideas or a hundred thousand dollars and wants to let me pay somebody to figure this out, that'd be great. Um, (laughs) I have have like two, two thoughts on this subject. Sorry, I've been rambling. No, no, it's okay. (laughs) Like uh, the one of them is that, yeah, this sort of data is just really hard to get in part. Like, you can never completely trust self-reporting and it's more complicated by the fact that people who stay around in the community are people who find value and are helped by this sort of thing. So the people that it doesn't work for just aren't going to be around to answer the survey in nearly the same numbers. Um, You really need something like a natural experiment sort of randomization event. Like I, not too long ago, I remember reading about um, a study about if school discipline actually helps life outcomes and like it's just really freaking hard to tell because where there's more school discipline it's also usually the case that more school discipline is needed because it's just a rougher neighborhood uh with more chaos and so there's all these other confounding factors and like one time in the early 2000s a uh, school districts got redrawn in the middle of the school year and without anybody like moving all of a sudden just some people that were in one neighborhood started going to a different school which happened to be a lot stricter and uh people just across the street from them went to this other school that was much more lax and due to this like fluke of redistricting that happened when it wasn't supposed to they were able to follow life outcomes for people over like 10 years to see what difference it made for people who had been in the same school previously and were still living in the same neighborhood and all that and that kind of thing is like really rare and requires a pretty large population to occasionally get those rare hits, which I don't think we're going to get uh, anytime soon. But I also kind of think like in one way, this is besides the point because a lot of this is people doing what, what helps them in life. But in another way, I, 
I've been saying this a lot, and it's just been dominating more and more of my thoughts over the past few years, that, again, it comes down to culture. And I think this this first got kicked off to me when uh, the Secret to Our Success book came out, and we started reviewing that. And I've been building more on along those lines, but I think culture is incredibly important to life outcomes, and culture takes a long time to propagate uh, to the point where it's noticeable. Like when Christianity first came out in the in the Roman Empire, uh, it, it was not, I mean, there were, first of all, a whole lot of different flavors of it, but it was not at all clear that this was a better way to uh, live life and do things than the Romans currently had going. And yet several hundred years later, it had spread to the point where it basically took over the empire. And yes, there were other extenuating circumstances, but culture takes a whole lot of people over many generations to the point where like you don't know that borderer culture being taken out of the border warfare zone and brought into the American colonial zone is going to result in the terrible culture of crime uh, and honor several hundred years down the line whereas Puritan culture actually ends up with a relatively stable prosperous culture and I think like in the end that's what is is it's going to happen uh, several generations from now, 100, 200 years, people will be like, huh, that rationality culture thing actually worked out pretty darn well. Look at how good they're doing overall, how low their crime rates are, and how they tend to be um, tend to be satisfied with their lives. And it, it would work the same way as Christianity, where just people in neighboring areas being like, those people apparently got something going for them. Let's let's convert over to their way of doing things because it seems to be working, and that's that's also... kind of squishy. And there's no numbers, and that sucks. But I don't know how else culture can propagate. <laughs> we don't have the benefit that previous cultures had of being able to colonialize, colonize. Right. <laughs> uh, like Christianity took over the world, like by literally sending people in ships and forcibly conquering peoples and forcibly converting them there's other well, religions that just really i mean you know in yash uh really aggressively proselytize we don't do either of those right. things we sort of anti-do that thing we, yeah. we we send really strong signals we have our ridiculous jargon uh i was scared to join the community for a while because i was like oh everyone's gonna think i'm an idiot and i don't belong here and they're all gonna be so much smarter uh-huh. than me and i think a lot of people had that sort of had or have that kind of mindset even people in the community are still afraid of other people in the community who are like more elite maybe we should have some kind of outreach uh i mean i was gonna say you you did a good job proselytizing a minute ago Inyash. you're welcome to lead that front. <laughs> um, have you heard of our lord and savior thomas bays um, <laughs> yeah. but like yeah i mean it's uh, I, I want to make sure that I address Matt's point and, and to be completely clear, like if, if I did a, if you feel like I'm dodging any points you made, uh, I'll, uh, you know, write me back and we'll, we'll try and hit it better. Um, and, and actually cover what you're trying to say. But like, it seemed like in your initial email, um, you tr- drew like a distinction between, uh, like persistence and like, uh, yeah, rationalism or persistence. And I, I don't think those are ors. Um, Persistence? I think that, yeah. So, like, he had said, consider what would work better in a, in a random world, rationalism or persistence. Mm-hmm. And so, Porque like no I said, I think, I think, 
Right. And I think that like it, it definitely takes both. And like you can be persistent and you can persistently chase your stupid idea. Like um, what was Eliezer's in the post we covered? Something about... Uh, and gravity influences neurons. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, you, so you, you could dumbly persist that or, you know, you can dumbly and persistently chase that for 30 years and be wrong. Or you can smartly per, uh, um, chase that down for as long as it takes to realize, oh, this is a dumb question um, or like a dumb hypothesis. I'm not going to waste the 30 years. Like, <laughs> um, I guess, do we have anything to say about like how one exercises rationality in a random in a world with admitted randomness and luck. Like, you know, I, I, and Matt pointed out too, I credited my joining the community and even hearing about it from being at a stoplight and hearing Julia Galef, also one of the founders and former president of the Center for Applied Rationality, um, point out uh, or pick, um, what was it? Uh, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality as her rationally speaking pick for that week. And like, I could so easily have not been at a stoplight and just like missed the memo on that. Um, you know, if I didn't pause when I got out of the car and played through that episode or something, I, then like, who knows, yeah. right? I I might not, I might never have gotten here. So like there, there's a level of, there's a huge level of luck involved in things, but I think that's, that's going to be true whether you're a rationalist or not. Yeah. So then I guess the question is, how do you account for the role of luck? My own intuition as I'm saying that is like, you try to constrain luck as much as possible. Like you try to continually pursue sources that have been fruitful in the past until they no longer bear fruit. Um, or, you know, like if I happened to hear about this one cool thing, cause I was in a conversation with this person, well, maybe I'll try and have more conversations with that person to hear about more cool things. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say, uh, I couldn't escape rationality. It's probably just due to, you know, I identify as an optimizer. I think a lot of people in this community can relate to that, but you know, as a kid, I was like, really serious about my beliefs or about what things I wanted. And I find that some people aren't very serious about that. Like there's so many people that believe in ghosts because they think it's cool that ghosts exist and then they'll misidentify like a shadow or, oh, I felt a weird chill. And then this other coincidental thing happened. It's a ghost. And that's cool and satisfying for them. For me, I was like, if there's a ghost, I'm going to go find him. (laughs) Going to get all the books, you know, like, I'll buy a multimeter. I don't know. No, I didn't. I didn't go that far. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's because you concluded before that that ghosts weren't real. Like I was, I was rationality adjacent before. I I think what I was getting at as far as the luck factor is that I might never have heard about the specific community. I think you know this was what ten years ago. So like Slate Star Codex would have come across my plate at some point, I imagine, because I was already like in the like skeptic community, um, mm-hmm. which is. I think maybe broader, but to me, like way easier and less interesting. Um, still super, super valuable. Don't get me wrong. Definitely, yeah, it's just like, stone, yeah. yeah, like, so if rationality is about helping you achieve your goals, I would like, if that's the one, like, you know, bumper sticker for it, I would say skepticism is about, uh, like maybe protecting your money against hucksters or, uh, like, yeah, consumer protection maybe is the best quick sell for it like how, how to keep you know you how to keep yourself safe from from people trying to separate you from your money for bad reasons and also just um, like consumer protection for most basic uh bullshit beliefs yeah epistemic uh protection or something right. like that and 
Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that. That would be my selling point. I think if I was if I was going to proselytize it with a bumper sticker, I would I would use it or like on the you know uh, quote on the front of my book, I would say how to keep people from taking your money or something because that that would be like a very sellable message, and is the only way you can do that is by having a base you know the basic framework of the understanding of the world that comes from the past few centuries of science that is ingrained in the skeptic community. Uh, or in the skeptic mindset, yeah, you have to be you know, a... like you need a basic understanding of medicine and physics, just so like you can avoid every bullshit treatment that everyone's trying to throw at you. At least be a materialist, um, even if you don't dig real deep into physics or medicine, but you know, kind of. I think the even like somebody who is really busy or doesn't like have the you know drive to study all this stuff can also learn enough about materialism. Oh, yeah. I meant it like at the very rudimentary Mm -hmm. level. Like I I was a friend was messaging me the other day because he's trying to figure out how to talk with his anti-vax friend. And, you know, his I'll I'll, I'll paraphrase and just say, like, you know, it's okay to like just point to the established authority of medical science. And it's it's when you get so if like if you as as a consumer are coming across something and it's perfectly consistent with your understanding of medical science, then you don't I, I don't really feel like I'm compelled to do a lot of research to figure out if that works. Like if someone says, Hey, I like, I'd never heard of aspirin. And they're like, Hey, here's some aspirin. It'll help your headache because it's an anti-inflammatory. I'd be like, Oh, great. If they said, Hey, here's some aspirin. It'll make your dick bigger. Like <laughs> I would be, I would be surprised and I would investigate. Right. Especially before I gave them $200 for a pill. But I'd also um, say, Oh, great. Well, it does thin your blood <laughs> I would out, say, no, thank you. Which might help. Right. But <laughs> Yeah, on. it's too easy not to make dick jokes, but that was that was the conversation I was having with my friend a couple days ago. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to cut, cut anyone off. I just uh, it, it put it put me in mind of that. That actually just put me off guard enough that I forgot what I was going to say. That's hilarious, though. Yay! I did it. Sorry. Um, gosh, what was I going to say? I don't know. Well, we I do have. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, actually, yeah, I was just going to say. Like, I feel like we've kind of we can talk about this as much as we want we don't have numbers which like is unfortunate but i do think and we do have oh we what do we have no sorry uh go on um well yeah we have basically the anecdotes of like everybody that i've met in the community at least saying that they feel that their quality of life was improved by being here uh and whether or not that's because they I know, like you, you could track um, people's careers. Uh, I think Stephen or Annie Ash, one of you mentioned longitudinal studies that track uh, people's careers. There, how much money they've made. Like, but maybe someone's life goal is to be a housewife, or like they just get a lot of fulfillment out of that, or to volunteer, um, or to. I know a guy who's in the rationalist community who is a nomad, and he just like does odd jobs and makes enough money to get by but otherwise just travels and advises people and he's this awesome like monk person <laughs> and I think he's just living his best life but um I mean and if success is money I mean like my what annual take home income has like tripled since I got into the community <laughs> um, granted that's because I was delivering pizzas part time when I first heard about it but um, when I decided to like actually, you know, we, we, you know, and I talked a little bit about like some of our 
random rationality techniques. And one of my main ones that was poorly articulated was like kind of just do the thing or at least figure out how hard the thing is to do if you want to try something. Mm. So when I finally took that advice to heart and got into and changed fields, I doubled my income. I did the opposite, though. Like, I, like, was in a high-paying career, and I left it because I realized it wasn't fulfilling. Like, uh, the whole kind of learning what your values are thing. I'm still exactly. not making as and much don't get money. Wrong. I'm, also, I'm also happier in this yeah. field. But, like, th- that, that just illustrates the point that, like, some people have different goals. Yeah. And so, like, the goal isn't necessarily to make seven figures. The goal might be to, like, I want to be happier. I want to forge better relationships. I want to... Uh, commit to an exercise regiment or something right mm-hmm. i didn't mean to cut you off i'm enthusiastic no i yeah i'm totally like with you on that that's sort of what i was about to say where i was working for disney as a video game designer for a while and i was miserable uh i was making great money uh working 11 hour days sitting in front of a computer all day not interacting with anyone and the career changes i made after that were things that actually pushed me out of my comfort zone uh they were all directed at just self-improvement and exploration and curiosity generally like working at the library taught me how to do social interactions uh and how to be more assertive and a lot of things and then like getting into a science field was sort of just me proving to myself that I could get into a science field (laughs) because I had been told when I was a little kid that like science isn't for girls which gross but um also I'm not a girl which haha (laughs) <laughs> take that you got them on both counts yeah. and like i also i also don't want to shit on on accounting but of the three of us you're the one whose career is making a positive impact on the world so um i i'll go ahead and you know i my if my if my company's product disappeared tomorrow the world would be no worse off for it i guess you know the people who make money off of it would lose that money but it's not like the kind of thing that i think will make a lasting impact on humanity yeah. well hold Whereas, on the I mean, I, I completely agree with that, you know, Jace is having the most impact and all, but, like, people give your company money because your company gives them something of value. Like, you're making someone's life better, which is why they're giving you money. And they, they're they actually getting money out of it, the customers are. Like, it's, it's uh, referral marketing tracking mm. is what my company does. And so, like, you're either getting money or something else. But, like, uh, the my always go-to example is, like, that little share button at the bottom of hulu um you know if hulu was one of our customers uh then it might be where like you know well, it doesn't matter but the point is is like you don't get you know hulu doesn't send you five bucks they send you two free free weeks which is the equivalent of seven and a half dollars right um mm. so you know saving some people a little money down the road but that said like i'm not building ai yet but you know i'm i'm new into the into my careers so I put yeah. more uh, stock in growth mindset honestly, the people that are trying to mitigate ai risk that's the bigger concern i think <laughs> but uh that is totally an aside but no I'll just, I'll just make ai first and then you know we'll solve the problem <laughs> of the of the fallout afterwards i mean uh i that's supposed to be as a far joke. as no i sorry <laughs> oh no you're I, good. I, I processed it late because i was like on a thought train of some kind oh i was, I was just making it clear so no one ats me over <laughs> it you know steven that's really a bad idea um we one more thing i'll finish i think particularly if i'm thinking about uh effective altruism and like eighty thousand hours the fact that i think the rationalist community has identified what they think are the key existential risks and also put a lot of work into uh 
Well, philosophy and ethics, I mean, those fields haven't really made a lot of progress since, I don't know, they've been around the, uh, for quite a while, and we've entered new territory with the atheists, skeptics movement, uh, kind of letting people for the first time be publicly free of superstitious beliefs, but then there's sort of a void left there, and people are trying to define, like, what's good. I think, I mean, EA is pretty incredible. Um, when I thought about, like, the simple, the simplicity of the concept of just, like, you know, g giving 10% of your earnings, whatever that is, or whatever you can afford to give based on how much you make and what your expenses are to the people that are literally the most in need or the cause that needs the most, uh, you know, just, like, the multiplying your efforts there. Um, yeah, we forgot to mention that EA was birthed out of the rationality. That was one I was trying to think of when I was talking about the uh, organizations that I, like, I was like, you know, the one with the charities and the, yeah, give well <laughs> and et cetera. Yeah, uh, even if that's all the rationality community contributed, like, and then we just all died out because a meteor struck the SF Bay or something. And, like, still, that's, uh, assuming, like, these organizations continue to move forward i think uh, eighty thousand hours giving those resources to people who have the drive to either work to give or to work in one of the key fields like you know researching pandemics uh going into politics uh the ai alignment problem uh that's all stuff that humanity really needed and is no one else is really like pushing real hard on these things i mean religions are still saying the things religions have always said which is do quote-unquote good things and don't and you know stop the bad quote-unquote things which are just super outdated um and you'll get to heaven or whatever your reward is i think only like buddhism that i can think of doesn't have some kind of reward uh gosh now i'm going on like a big long tangent i was gonna finish up real quick no you're good i'm just trying to trying to think of how i could like wrap up my thoughts about this which are i guess i think we're already doing pretty good for a very young sentient species <laughs> as compared to the many other sentient species out there god i should just stop <laughs> i'm gonna stop i think i've made my point already as a very as a very young community yeah let's let's go with that one what about you and yash did you have any wrap-up thoughts on this subject no no i am i'm good i think we've hit just about everything how about you um, I mean, I, I, I want to make sure I do the question justice. And like, I feel like saying we don't have the answer or like don't have the data yet is a cop out. But I, I hope I've given a good explanation to why I feel like it's uh, just the circumstance we're in. And that it at the same time doesn't make it unreasonable to believe that there's something here. Um, and I don't think that the you know, type of people who, who uh, need the data to join are going to actually join like this is something you do because it feels like it is making your life better and yes we would all like to have that data and it is an ideal and a goal of the community to have that eventually but that's not what personally motivates people yeah i mean that's a good point certainly not at this stage like if it did work out to where you know cfar 3.0 can guarantee you know guarantee with like 96 percent success that you will see a 50 percent increase in your income a year after leaving the the workshop or something that'd be great um but I mean, yeah, like right now, it's it's mainly anecdata that, you know, I can give for my own personal testimony as to why I'm here and that I've heard from other people. Um, and, you know, part of it's the community aspect of it. Like the the friends that I've made in the community are awesome. Um, I don't 
like, I mean, I didn't make any friends in the skeptic community. I was never, maybe because there's no in-person things. Um, although there wasn't here really in Denver until I started them. So <laughs> like maybe if I tried in Fort Collins, it could have happened, but, um, for a skeptic meetup, but, oh, you know what? There was actually a skeptic meetup and it was super boring. I remember someone was trying. I remember that. I went to one. Uh, yeah, I think I kept saying I was going to go and they never made it out. I went to one. It was like an upstairs part of a, of a coffee shop. And some guy just came in. He's like, so I heard there, this was like a skeptics meetup. I wanted to ask you guys about like, you know, it was some ESP or some bullshit. Yeah. And it was like, okay, so, so we spent the whole time talking with him about Gosh. ESP. Um, I mean, it was, it was fun. And it's kind of exactly what you want if you go to a skeptic meetup. You want to sit there and tell somebody why they're wrong. But uh, <laughs> That's never why I was into it, though. It, like, and I guess that's... Uh, that's why you're here and not there. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, why do you get together and talk about like... Is the, I I still am sad about the fact that the atheist skeptics movement kind of seems to, I don't know what happened. I think, oh god, that, you I, know what? Let's not get into culture wars stuff. But culture wars happened. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have a brief culture note, the uh, culture worry side note that I can make before we segue into discussing any other like rationality techniques. Because Jace, you missed that episode, and I wanted to get your your take. Um, uh, if you feel like you're up I for it, but the think uh, we might be running kind of long this time, actually. Yeah, and we still got like a couple things that I wanted to hit right. kind of fast before we finish. Fair enough. Well, we'll 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 just have like whenever we feel like it or we need to fill some dead air, we'll throw in a rationality technique that we like. How's that sound? <laughs> I almost want to do like a um, part two of that episode because I have so many things. Okay, yeah, we'll make it a dedicated thing then. Um, anyway, I, I wanted to mention that. Uh, like five hours ago, as of the posting of this, the New Yorker uh, posted a uh, an article called Slate Star Codex in the Silicon Valley Wars Against the Media. <laughs> and uh, it was about as good as the title makes it sound. Um, again, it does that wordy thing where it has to like, just, I, I, I don't quite get that style of writing. And AI you know, like probably places have their own it. style of writing. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. No, I think it has a human author, but like, uh, I, speaking of styles of writing, this is just to kind of get the illustrate the point. Like, has anyone ever read a LinkedIn post? Uh, like, either I've of you? Been forced Not to. really. Okay, well, so uh, like, if you if anyone has a LinkedIn, go there and just scroll to the top of your feed and look for one that's not an ad, <laughs> and just look at the weird way everyone talks. It's all algorithmic. Like, I'm they're, telling they're you, all, this is. But but it's hu- it's human algorithmic. It, but, it is and it like, isn't. Even even I, I have a friend. He he was a groomsman at my wedding. Talks like a perfectly normal human in real life. I see his LinkedIn posts once in a while, and it's like, you know, so happy to be working with the you know this best you know the best team. They were really driven. The synergy here is awesome, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, why are you talking like this? Oh, because you're on LinkedIn. But so anyway, I, I bring that up because that's how I feel about reading like every news website. Uh, but the New Yorker... They're maximizing uh, for eyeballs, and it's its algorithmic. Uh, it's about keywords. There may or may not be human analysts that are coming up with this stuff, but I was in the App Store optimization and search engine optimization. Like, uh, that was part of my job when I was doing the social media marketing, the aforementioned one. Definitely... Uh, this is... I don't know. Like I, I almost want to do a whole episode about the YouTube algorithm. Because it's gotten really terrifying. That does sound like another interesting can of worms. I just meant that I've read ones that are written by humans who I flesh and blood yeah. know. And they and would never write that they just, title. They put on, yeah, they just put on a... No, no I mean, it, 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 it is their t- 
title. Like they, they wrote the but whole I mean, thing. If, if, if they this just was talk the way that they were speak. talking to you, they would never yeah phrase it that way. It's because they're optimizing for keywords. Exactly. I think unconsciously even. Uh, um, I think it's probably pretty intentional. I think people just talk different in different mediums. Like I talk with my parents differently than I talk with you guys. And I think there's probably a similar thing with LinkedIn. I definitely talk with my boss different than I do with uh, my friends. One more. Yeah, like there, there's Tumblr speak, there's Reddit speak. Um, like that's just the thing. Anyway, I brought all that up because I hate reading articles from places like The New Yorker and New York Times and Vice and all that stuff. And yet I found articles from all those things uh, while doing this. And then I came across The New Yorker one for the... I just wanted to plug really quick and I'll put it in the show notes. That's why I brought it up. Um we're recording on what the I already forgot the, the date because it's always the ninth. It's if I haven't mentioned yet, we're in the middle of a plague, and you know. So when you're listening to this five years in the future, this is <laughs> during the first year of lockdown when everyone was still adjusting. So um, <laughs> that's a scary thought. Um, yeah, by year three, we'll have this down. Everything will feel about, feel like it's normal. I really uh, love how the headline. Good. Oh, I really love how the headline says that it's uh, the Silicon Valley war on the media mm-hmm. instead of the other way around, because fuck you, you assholes. By love, I mean hate in this case. Were, were they? Yeah, no, it, they're like, it's delightful. We're the media, so obviously Silicon Valley declared war on us. Also the derision. Well, that, and like you're expected to read the, the words Silicon Valley with a rolled eye and a sneer. Are you? I think so. I mean, oh, anytime okay. I see Silicon Valley mentioned, uh, I think in 10% of cases, it's to praise some innovation. And in 90% of cases, it's to like give the middle finger to those those people, you know, those tech bros, those the, us. <laughs> I don't know. I say Silicon Valley a lot, and I just mean it to refer to the place. You do. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't realize that there was this negative connotation. Maybe... Uh, Maybe that's just if you read The New Yorker. No, I think it's a lot of media outlets. Um, kind of like using the word rich. Yeah, it's not even you know, that. Like so- somebody could be wealthy, but like that's almost a it slur. It reminds me of the extent you know? to which people hate Elon Musk. It, to the. I mean, in his defense, he does a lot to help fuel that. It sucks. He's like like the Batman that we all want, but we're not getting. And he like so could be. He's almost our universe's Tony Stark. <laughs> But I mean, like, I, I, he just does some weird shit. I mean, doing weird shit isn't something that should make people hate you. We do weird shit all the time. Yeah, but we're not famous. No, it's the like <laughs> the fact that oh, he thinks he's so so much smarter than all of us. Uh, but I even saw somebody was shitting on Elon Musk for attempting to come up with some kind of COVID intervention. I don't remember exactly what it. Oh, it was um, he tried to get his company to donate a bunch of uh ventilation machines to hospitals and they sent the wrong machines to a hospital but i think actually i looked into it and they did send the correct machine to like a large number of hospitals and maybe one or some percentage got the wrong machine and i think it was fixed after the fact but it was like go home tony stark like you know stop trying to same thing about like bill gates and the malaria foundation like i see hate from yeah like anyone involved in ea too but like God forbid that you try to say that there's a better way to do charity than you giving to like your neighborhood baseball team or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand I can conf- what kind of a monster tries to help humans. Well, I think it's anyone that puts themselves I, I, I can confirm. in a position of saying that they're good at something or like, like, you know, trying to be the best at this thing, then all the haters have to 
rise up and tear them down. And of course, anything that feeds into that is going to be maximally eyeball grabbing. So they try to really like push for that in the media. It's there's just so much negativity bias in the media. I can confirm that of the media slant about Elon Musk's respirators, I literally only heard about the hospital that got the wrong ones. Um, but like by the weird shit, I mean like you know when the those Taiwanese kids were stuck in that cave and he like tried to build that sub or something and then they I think they ended up not using it and then he called like the guy who rescued them on Twitter a pedophile. Um, I think out of nowhere. Uh, so like that's that's the weird shit I'm talking about. Yeah, but Whoa. Then, like the, the, everyone's gonna focus on that though, like rather than the fact that he tried to do something about it. Oh no, I'm I'm the one singing it. Don't get me wrong. I, I I was singing his praises. It just it it's just like sometimes he make he he gives the enemy too much ammunition. But we're getting hung up on Elon Musk. But I get I get the the point. Yeah, um, I mean I I guess yeah. I don't think that he should have to be a politician. No, but I also don't think you should be running around calling people. I mean, on, probably not, but that's or calling people a pedophile on Twitter when you've got a lot of followers. You know, this is exactly why most people should never ever get on Twitter. Well, he's not doing any worse than the president. Fair. <laughs> that's you know, if you're setting the bar there, then we're all doomed. I think we're all doomed. Oh, jeez. Actually, like alrighty, now she said you had something to something else to talk about before we all get doomed. Give Twitter. Yeah. Uh, sure. Let's go on to the Twitter one then. Um, I used to have a Twitter account. I made it like many years ago, basically never used it after about a week because I was like, this is dumb. Twitter's terrible. I'm out. <laughs> I logged back into Twitter for the first time in years to uh, post a note of support for Ayla. Uh, Ayla is a rationalist and is probably most well known to people uh, by her own admission as being the person who dropped acid, a large dose of acid every week for I don't even know how long. Months, at least, maybe. I think it was two year. years. Years. Okay, cool. And yeah, we talked about her when we did our psychedelics episode. We did. I just didn't remember how how long this went on. A long time. Uh, yes, apparently. Uh, anyways, she no longer does the the weekly acid, but this is not what this is about. So I'm gonna get to what it is about. Uh, Ayla twittered or tweeted, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, she, she texted to the tweet.com confession. I lurk in Christian only communities online. And when someone posts about doubting their faith or being in pain over what their faith requires them to do, I PM them sympathy and affirm their doubts. And like, first of all, that is awesome. I, I logged on to reply and say that that's awesome. And to thank her for helping both improve those people's lives in the long run and strengthening society as a whole, because that is wonderful, and I, you know, I kind of wish I had the the time and the energy to do that sort of thing too. I wish I had the uh, stomach to go on Christian forums at all. Yeah, I mean, like just just the fact that you're <laughs> there and able to find these people out of all the other stuff you're probably looking at. And uh, the main reason I did this, I like wouldn't have done it if it was just a tweet, because you know fuck Twitter, I'm not getting on Twitter for anything, but apparently there was a lot of backlash from a bunch of people, even within the uh, rationalist community, being like, oh, that's bad, don't do that. And so I had to go on and say, you, you to bomb, keep doing what you're doing, because I don't know why people would be upset that someone would do this. I might be wrong, but I was under the impression that a lot of people actually just misunderstood the way she worded her post. Maybe it has something to do with Twitter, and it's like one-sentence posts. Uh, but I think they thought that she was encouraging them to stick with the faith. 
No, I believe it's the exact opposite. No, I know that's. I know she was doing the opposite. I think some people misunderstood what direction she said that she was arguing in. Uh, I, I I think that she said, like, affirm their yeah. doubts. I, I don't think that that was the misunderstanding. I think the misunderstanding that people had, because I have to believe, because you sent us the tweet. And so I read that and a handful of the replies. And I saw yours and Eliezer Yudkowsky, um, and he wasn't supportive. He had said, I can't support you on this Which or something. Which baffles me. And I'm a, so what I'm assuming that he thought, unless I'm totally failing to model him correctly, which is entirely possible, like, I'm thinking that he thought, oh, you go around and, like, go, like, try and deconvert people or something, which is, you know, uh, to some extent, to some communities, maybe admirable if that's your thing. I, I don't, I've never, like, in the last, I don't know, decade, I haven't really gotten off on doing that. Um, that said, if someone confessed to me privately that they're having doubts about their religion and, like, struggling to deal with the fact, like, what do I do if there's no afterlife or something, I feel like the nicest thing I could do would be to reach out to them and say, yeah, man, uh, I went through the same thing. Here's how you, here's how I got over it. Like, I'd love to help. Uh, that That's how I read her tweet. Yeah, exactly. That and I think how that... I read it. I just was under the impression, again, from the way some people were replying, that it was literally just a misunderstanding of the wording. Um, that's probably not super no, important, think... though, because I think that the people who did seem to have understood, have... <laughs> read the wording correctly and still disagreed uh i don't know what their beef is like maybe just that's this isn't a good use of your time or from what i i think they mostly were pattern matching to the fact that uh religious people will often uh prey on people who are at their lowest point in their life they just had a loved one die or something terrible happened to them and they pounce on them and say you know jesus or muhammad or whoever can uh, help you through this time and save you forever, and you'll get to see your family member again. Oh, Sylvia and, Brown can talk to them right now. Yeah, exactly. That's remember sort of her? Thing. And yes, yes, the I, psychic. I hope not. The kid's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I only ever learned about her from James Randi's. My uh, mom has her numbers, books. So she was. Oh, that's She also sad has a scary. Deepak Chopra books, some other bullshit. Uh, uh Anyway. Yeah, but this is uh, this is absolutely not that because first of all, she's in Christian forums where Christians are there to talk about religion, and these are people who are saying, you know, hey, I have some doubts, and so she tells them, yeah, you know, I I see that other people in your forums are not addressing these doubts. You're right to have these doubts. Like these are people here explicitly to talk about their faith with others. And she also mentioned that how did she phrase it? Um, I have the tweet. Uh. And when someone posts about doubting their faith or being in pain over what their faith requires them to do, I PM them sympathy and affirm their doubts. I mean, PMing them sympathy is very much not the preying on someone, I think, unless, like, I don't know. Uh, since I and, like, I haven't seen, like, it would be interesting, actually, to see if she has any screenshots of those posts, but that would probably also just be too... It'd be too privacy-violating. Indeed. Uh, but still, like... I just don't get the impression that this is somebody trying to be like, ah, ha, ha, I can convert this person to my side. Right. And if somebody is posting that they're having, feeling pain over doing something their religion requires them to do, it's probably because their religion is requiring them to, like, cut off ties with their child because their child came out as gay or something. Mm -hmm. this, this is a good thing that she's doing, saying people, yes, I feel your pain. Uh, th this is 
because your religion is asking you to do bad things. Like, she's making people's lives better, and by reducing religiosity in society, she's making society better overall. Like, this is how we get to the transhumanist future, right? I think it's, We help people yeah. see things that are false. I think generally, like, you're doing a public service if you expose someone to different viewpoints than their own. Uh, I was raised Catholic, and I was just totally... Like, I never... I didn't know what an atheist was... I had I was just of the opinion as a child, like sheltered and whatnot, that everyone believes in God and everyone does these things. And it never occurred to me, like even when I tried to test God's existence by like jumping off a desk repeatedly and being like praying for God to like let me fly for a second, even if no one's watching, just to prove that he existed. And then when it didn't happen, I was like, God exists, but he's a dick. Not that God doesn't <laughs> exist. That just wasn't an idea that I could have yet. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, like, more of my deconversion actually came from studying other faiths. I bought, like, a book about, it was just a bunch of different religions, interviewed people. Like, I think it was specifically a book for kids who were interested in, like, religion and maybe wanting to change faiths or, I don't know. But uh, I remember there was interviews with a bunch of kids where they talked about, like, here's what my practice looks like day to day, and here's what I believe and why I think it's important. And that was another realization of, oh, like, all these people feel the same way, just as strongly about their faith, which is incompatible with this other one. Uh, And then finally, actually, like, my deconversion came from just reading the Bible cover to cover. But, like... Yeah, I think that's a popular deconversion tool. (laughs) I don't know, that was something that occurred to me earlier, too, that was just like, why don't you just tell them, like, have you read this cover to cover? (laughs) And really thought about it. But, uh... Yeah. I don't know. I mean... There's a lot more foreskin talk than you would guess, you know, having, <laughs> never, having never opened the book. so much bullshit that the Bible talks about. Like, I remember slogging through the parts of the Old Testament that was just, like, talking about animal sacrifice. How to build altars to sacrifice. Exactly. Pages, how to build pages, an altar to sacrifice pages. an animal. And it was, like, the most, like, boring detail about, like, it can't have one black hair on it. It must be pure, like, uh, it can't have had any brothers, and it needed to have the... You know, then you have to hold the head in this particular way and face this direction, spin around three times and hop on one foot and spit behind your left shoulder. And then it's just like on and on and on and on. I was like, there's no way God or like any, any like immortal being or whatever wrote this. <laughs> like, and this if you is had so been... specific to that, like Bronze Age desert society that cared about things like goats. And if you had been in a Christian forum at the time and said, hey, you know, I'm having some doubt about my faith, like with all this weird goat talk, would you have felt preyed upon and violated if someone PM'd you like, hey, yeah, you're, I think you're right to have those doubts? I think even if like, I'm trying to imagine like from, from the other side. Because um... like, I would have felt like I'd finally found a kindred soul, someone who, who, yeah. who was actually willing to talk about the thing that everyone else in my community is saying, shut up, you must not talk about this. And, you know, it'd be nice to have someone there to be like, oh, thank God, there's another sane person here. Even if I didn't, like, even if I wasn't convinced by their arguments, it would be nice to have someone who acknowledges that these are issues and just be able to finally speak my mind without feeling like I was about to get destroyed by my community yeah like the even the whole like pming them sympathy over their pain yeah. is the important part of that like i think that if 
I'm trying to like put myself back in my head, but I'm, of course, like forums didn't exist. But when I was like, thinking your... about all this, if someone who was Muslim had PM'd me sympathy about my pain and then also said like, and, and here's like what I believe and why I believe it, I, and like, you know, with epistemic honesty, I would have been like, thank you for telling me that. Like, uh, maybe that doesn't change my opinion, but like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I got to as if you are, when you're deep in a Christian community and that is your identity and that is everyone you know, it is incredibly lonely to be like the only person in the universe that has doubts. Yeah. And it really sucks. And like one of the best things about getting online when I was a kid was that I finally discovered there were other people like me out there. And that was fucking huge. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, this is this is just an unvarnished good in every way. It's good for the person. It's good for society. I mean, this is, Ayla's doing God's work. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny coming on the tail end of us, sort of. I felt a little bit bad when we were talking. We weren't really talking shit on, like, the skeptic community. Uh, but I kind of cringed a little bit after I said it's a stepping stone. Because I don't want to... I don't want to say that the skeptic community or the atheist community is not as important as the rationalist community or that they're like uh, less enlightened or something like that. It's right. It is very important. We were talking about um, being able to falsify hypotheses. Like a lot of the important work that science has done is falsifying a lot of hypotheses. Even if like the answer ends up being, I don't know, there's still a lot of things that the answer is, I don't know. Uh, and it's important to know that <laughs> to not just have a fake yeah, answer. Don't get me wrong. My, I think, I think skepticism does a, a lot of the work for laying, or at least for me, did a lot of the work in laying the foundation for me to be primed, to be into rationality. Um, and like my longest running monthly donation has been to skeptoid media. Uh, we had Brian Dunning, the host on twice. Um, I think it's a fantastic, uh, endeavor. I, I have nothing like I said, I have nothing but good things to say about it. I mainly said it was it was uh, um, rationality in easy mode because I don't feel like there's a lot of positive work. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to just be like in the loop on skepticism, um, like it's at least maybe it was just really easy for me because there's, you know, I was already super primed for it or something. Um, I, but I could be completely uncharitable there. Like there's a lot of positive work that they do as well. I mean, uh, look at any big figure i mean uh, brian dunning again um you know he's without without fail uh except i think he missed one tuesday um in the last 13 or 14 years he's put out a podcast on random subjects that are enlightening to random people or on on uh various things and some of them are for fun some of them are uh like super profound but it's just about hey let's let's point our skeptical eye at this at this little thing here um he also produces uh, educational material for schools, for teachers, uh, movies, um, and that's just one guy. Yeah. Like, it's uh, it's it's, yeah. Don't if I if I was heard earlier as dissing the skeptic community, I I retract what I said and, and further issue that clarification. Yeah, I love the skeptic community. It was really important for me, like especially during the time period uh, when I got really into it. It was right after my two best friends died, and I was like working almost full time and also commuting to college and living at my parents' house and pretty isolated. And it was just like, for a while, I just was really like only sort of listening to skeptic podcasts 
like watching Christopher Hitchens do debates on YouTube and reading Richard Dawkins books. And it felt like, oh, at least like, here's something that I can feel pretty solid about in my life. Being able to like, I'm, I'm glad I found you a good time. Just confirm this one yeah. thing <laughs> or like, yeah, I don't know. Um, we're going pretty late. Uh, yeah. Should we, uh, can I do my one last thing? No, please. Before we end up, the, before we have up the episode. <laughs> please. Uh, no, no, go for it, man. All right, so this last thing is going to be sort of a follow-up to last week. Um, I don't want to get into any of that conversation again uh, for the most part, but in the other podcast that I'm on, The Mind Killer, we often talk about uh, it's uh, COVID-19 and how the CDC really fucked up that result and, uh, or that whole thing. Uh, one of the things that... I have come to learn over the past several months is that you know how the lot of people uh, specifically our president but a lot of people are saying well you know COVID is it's basically like just a, a bad flu it's like two bad flu seasons right uh, because the CDC often say like a flu season will kill 40 to 60 thousand people so uh, it's not that big a deal and I mean intuitively that seems right-ish if it is projected that COVID-19 would kill about twice as many people as a bad flu season that's not that big a deal like we have bad flu seasons all the time uh yeah it sucks that people die but this is not a society shattering event um and it turns out that the CDC doesn't have exact numbers on how many people die during the flu season but it's almost certainly an order of magnitude less than what they're saying uh, what what the CDC does is like a lot of deaths of old people and sick people that are possibly helped along by flu-like symptoms get attributed to uh, death from flu, specifically because if everybody got the flu shot every year, that would really make a big deal for society. It would help with pretty much every metric our gdp would go up because people would miss less work people would be healthier in general there would be less deaths and so they've been pushing for a long time this many people die every year from the flu everybody get your flu shot and like their intentions are good they are trying to save lives they are trying to get people to get the flu vaccine which everyone should be doing anyway but uh they use misinformation to make that point and for decades, it didn't matter that they used misinformation as long as it was pushing people to do the right thing. But then a pandemic that is similar to COVID-19 appears, and all of a sudden people start using their misleading numbers to say, look, it's not that much worse than the flu, and we get this shit show. So uh, that is one of the reasons I am so dedicated to uh, epistemic rigor, because you don't know when your little misrepresentations and bendings of the truth in order to get a really good result is going to come around and bite you in the ass. And I just, I think it's important to not be misleading even for a great cause like preventing thousands of people per year of dying of the flu. Or Do you have a source for that you can share? You know, not offhand, but I will look it up. Yeah, I'm also... Well, because the, or the order of magnitude uh, disparity between the reported number to get people to go get flu shots, um, I mean, you know, the, the concept of like a noble lie uh, seems appropriate there. And if it gets the job done, it's hard 
to argue against it unless you're going to point out things like what just happened. And I think that's extremely uh, important. Uh, and I'm really surprised to hear that they might have been pushing false yeah, numbers. Yeah, and I also so. sort of want to, I mean, uh, I'm open to being proven wrong, but I am sort of questioning how much of a lie this was. If you're saying, for example, someone had, like, yeah, a lot of um, elderly people or young sick children that have a bunch of other, maybe like, immunosuppressive disorders or whatever and then end up dying of flu-like symptoms are attributed to the flu. I mean, everybody dies from multiple causes. So I wouldn't say that that's not a death that was caused by the flu. I mean, maybe not that specific strain of the flu, but most people don't know all the science about the different mutations and about herd immunity anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, I've heard I've heard that argument against like COVID deaths too. Like, oh, you know, that person also had some underlying lung condition. And like, yeah, but COVID killed them. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah. Like they had an underlying, they had an underlying lung condition, and they were living with it until they contracted COVID, and then they got sick and died. I mean, uh, so like, it, it, if I think we have to include all the deaths that come from people who have this and die while they have it, it's right? Not like, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. I have uh, a, another friend who died of cancer, but she actually died from an infection. Uh, a lot of people who have cancer die of something else because when you're treating cancer, you have to wipe out their natural immune system with chemotherapy. And then they have to be in a sterile environment and often something benign kills them. Same thing with people that are immunosuppressed for other reasons or are already struggling with other conditions. If that flu um, risk hadn't been there because people had gotten the flu shot, then they might have survived. Right. And that's the problem. Like the whole, they might have survived if they didn't get the flu, but they don't really know for sure, and so they take the highest end number of, of that. Like, everyone who had the flu and died gets counted, even if the... You, you don't know how many of them would have actually died. They aren't, like, direct flu deaths. Um, as, uh, unlike yeah. the COVID people, which generally, they would not have died if it was not for COVID. Uh, I, like, want to talk about this more, but it, coming right on the end of the episode, uh, maybe... Oh, I don't know. I, maybe I also have to on a... Well, yeah, well, well, we can table it for now. I also insisted that we record on a weeknight so that I can get <laughs> the stuff ahead of time for editing purposes and all this and that. So we're all wiped from work stuff, too. Um, are, are we good to call it here, then? Yeah. Are we going to thank a patron, though? All right. Well, yes, of course. We're never too tired to thank a patron. <laughs> oh, Whose turn is it? Is I'm the, looking at the list. Is the person who um, who started this email chain with you a patron? We could oh, thank um, him I so. was looking at that on our Why list. Why don't we thank them, I, anyway? They're not on our doc here well we um, can't thank I mean, a patron well, I, I, if he's not a patron uh, well no no I, I was gonna i mean i you guys jumped you already beat me to the punch and take some of the oomph out of it makes it sound like it wasn't planned from the start oh. i did want to thank matt for uh writing this and even while you know having uh some i guess i don't know whatever misgivings or or concerns about some of the the claims or something in the community to still listen and he's been listening patiently waiting for us to get around to the subject since april 18th 2018 <laughs> wow. so thank you so much for uh sticking with us this long and i hope you uh at least got some clarity out of our answer even though we couldn't cite oh no check out these three awesome studies but i hope you did find this valuable and uh do let me know what you thought so thanks again and thanks also to mark i'm gonna butcher this sorry govia <laughs> Your support keeps this podcast alive, keeps the lights on, lets uh, Jace buy a headset so that we can record <laughs> at a distance during the plague, and 
um, it's uh, it means a lot. So thank you so much. And if it's Govia or Jovia, sorry if I butchered it. One Mark of those is Govia wrong. At least one Jovia. of those is wrong. You're great. Confetti. <laughs> thank you. I'm making yes. I'm making confetti hands and I'm aiming them at my computer screen. But anyway, and uh, and you. You aren't just making us happy, you are also making everyone else who listens to this podcast happy because we can keep bringing it to them because of your support. So a lot of people are thankful for your support right now. That's a really good point. Oh, I like that. Yeah, and um, so, yeah. Matt, the original question asker, I also wanted to kind of shout out to you for having those doubts. I mean, um, even though it seemed like at points I was probably like arguing against your concerns it's a concern that i share too it's important for me to know whether or not i you know um am doing the right things with my life or have the right beliefs and i think that that's a really like i said a virtue of the rationalist community is always questioning yourself well put and i forgot to mention that actually that the question i i thought of that when i first read his most recent email i was like you realize that questioning things is a rationalist virtue uh and uh yes um that's a, a really good point thanks chase yeah Let's call it a night. All right. Thank you, everybody. Sounds good to me. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next fortnight. Good night, everybody. And one quick reminder, don't forget to nominate What Lies Dreaming in the DragonCon Fan Awards if that is a thing you would like to do. Thanks. Thanks.